Welcome to another Growth Masters Federal podcast on growing your business in the federal sector. Your host is Shirley Collier, president and founder of Scale to Market. Scale to Market helps businesses think, plan, collaborate, and prosper in the federal marketplace by developing and executing data-driven business development playbooks, creating cost-effective information systems, and coaching executives to success. Forming a joint venture with another small business or in a mentor-protege relationship can provide significant benefits to a growing federal contractor, including opportunities to pursue large contracts, direct access to government contracting officers and agencies, and development of past performance experience as a prime. But the risks, both perceived and actual, such as how to protect your IP, employees, contracts, and other clients, giving up some measure of control, protecting your reputation if your partner doesn't perform, increased government scrutiny and increased complexity and cost in legal accounting and management issues keep many companies from pursuing this approach to growing their business. Attorney Don Walsh brings over 25 years of experience working with small government contractors to this informative and detailed discussion that debunks the myths, lays out in clear terms the benefits and risks, and enumerates the myriad details that must be addressed when considering this important option for accelerating the growth of your federal contracting business. And now here's your host, Shirley Collier, with her guest, attorney Don Walsh. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, this is Shirley. A few introductory comments before I bring in my guest, Don Walsh, a fabulous attorney with Wright Constable and Skeen, headquartered in Baltimore. The reason JVs have become a hot topic over the last few years is due to SBA regulations clarified in August of 2017 regarding mentor-protege JVs, which sweeten the pot for non-socioeconomically certified companies, large and small, to enter into mentor-protege relationships with companies that are socioeconomically certified and to form JVs to bid on set-aside contracts. The sweetener is that the non-certified company can perform up to 60% of the resulting contract. Previously, the socioeconomically certified company had to perform at least 51%. Mentor-protege JVs are now available to all small businesses. Mentors may provide protégés with financial, technical, and management assistance. Mentors may own up to 40% of the protégé company, and affiliation rules are waived. So these are very attractive elements for mentors. We now have about two years of experience in the marketplace under these new rulings, and we want to share with you what works for small businesses and what may not work in a small business's favor. And we are looking at this issue from a business and a legal perspective, which is why I've asked my colleague, Don Walsh, to join me today. Welcome, Don. Thank you, Shirley. Don, we only briefly introduced you. Please tell our audience a little more about you and your practice. Thanks. I have been practicing law now for almost 30 years, and I specialize in handling and helping a lot of small businesses. Over that period of time, a vast majority of my clients have ended up being government contractors. And because of the fact that most of my clients are government contractors, I have dealt with every issue that those government contractors can face, everything pretty much from cradle to grave. I've helped people start government contractors all the way up to the point that I've helped them sell those successful contractors at some point in time. 
Over the past couple of years, every contractor is always looking for new ways to raise revenue to chase after those contracts and that elusive government prime contract. The thing that has become most popular for a lot of these people now are they're getting into more and more of the JV world to try and find different ways to go after different things that they previously couldn't compete for. Yes, and that's our topic of discussion. So from a a business perspective, there are many reasons a small business may want to form a joint venture. Among those are a joint venture can be formed to go after multiple opportunities. So you don't have to do just one opportunity among two companies, for example. The joint venture can benefit from the bonding capacity of all member companies, and that helps small businesses when they partner with larger companies. Liability can be limited in a joint venture company. The JV may have a lower cost structure, making it more competitive if price is a major source selection criterion, and that's important to the mentor company. So, Don, from a legal perspective, what do you think are the benefits to small companies? Sure, thanks. There are actually a lot of benefits that a lot of these companies can have. It's a lot like the way that your parents might have taught you when you were a child that you needed to work on a team and that you'd benefit from being part of a team. In addition to new insights, experiences, and new markets, there are more direct benefits to government contractors. And the fact that contractors have a lot of new ways that they can ultimately share some of the risks that come along with doing government contracting. They have the ability to actually enhance their capacities and build upon past performance records, which is really the value that most government contractors have and that ultimately they build upon as they continue to grow. They can help get enhanced responsibility determinations, which are critical in winning different contracts, especially when you're just a small startup or disadvantaged company. You can help develop skills and experience, uh, and you can have a voice and a control over how a contract is performed and managed rather than just as a subcontractor, but as part of the actual management for that particular contract. You also get access to the government directly as a result of that, which is something that a lot of smaller contractors have never experienced because of the fact they've always been the sub. In addition, it enables the parties to often develop very direct relationships with that government agency and the contracting officials that help with future purchases and sales. And minority members of a joint venture may exert more control than in traditional prime sub-relationships. How does this play out from a legal angle? Just so that we can make it clear, too, when we talk to minority members, what we're really talking um, is about the disadvantaged company in these situations. They really are the ones who are calling the shots because under the SBA's rules for these mentor-protege small business JVs, that ultimately they are placed in a position of management. As a result of being placed in a position of management, they also control the books and the records. They control different legal issues about uh, controlling a company when a member withdraws. They have to file certain reports with the SBA on a regular basis. And ultimately, the JV and and both the small business uh, and the large, to a point, end up maintaining some sort of ground and balance for learning in the government contract space and how to play nice in the sandbox. (laughs) That's always an issue, playing nice. (laughs) Another uh, business benefit, Don, of a, of a joint venture is that the government likes them and may give preference to such entities. Now let's talk about the circumstances in which a joint venture may not be beneficial to a small business. I can think of several business reasons. Members of a JV may be locked into a relationship for a longer time than expected or desired. Relationships change, and these changes can create challenges. An element of this is that 
the lead contractor gives up control in a joint venture. This is especially true in large companies. If they are accustomed to being in the lead position, learning to share decision-making can be very challenging, often leading to conflict, which, as you called it, you know, playing nice in the sandbox. The second con is risk. The government scrutinizes these partnerships carefully. So, Don, what do you see as some of the cons in joint ventures from a legal perspective? Just to tie in with your concept there about the government scrutinizing the partnerships carefully, keep in mind that in all these situations, there ultimately has to be a JV agreement, which is reviewed and shared with the contracting office and also with the SBA, in addition to the mentor-protege agreement that may have been uh, reviewed and uh, assessed prior to that point in time. The government has some pretty significant restrictions that go into those JV agreements that have to be listed in each time. One of the biggest cons that ends up happening in all these JVs is really a question of shared risk and the commitment, which is one of the biggest liabilities that you have in this. One of the interesting features of a JV is that both partners have to agree that even if one of the partners leave, they're going to continue with the JV and continuing that the government is ultimately going to get its work that it purchased through the JV. Uh, And having that shared risk and commitment is a pretty big deal for a lot of people because it's a contract at a level that they're probably not used to. One of the other issues and risks and cons, I suppose, in a JV comes down to trying to maintain the work levels. Suddenly, some of these smaller contractors are faced with trying to deal with recruitment, purchases, and a variety of other things that they have to do to try and maintain those work levels that they might not have been accustomed to in the past. There's affiliation that's always a, a risk in any JV. Although the government will not consider that the partners are affiliated for affiliation purposes, uh, the reality is is if you have enough of a relationship with that JV partner outside of the JV or you have multiple contracts with that JV partner, ultimately that affiliation can still factor back in under various SBA regulations. One other risk that uh, usually accompanies JVs is that the JV itself can have no more than three specific or limited purpose business ventures for the joint venture um, and profit over a two-year period. So basically, it's limited in the number of contracts it can be awarded during that period of time. The other thing is that JVs typically end up becoming populated or not populated. Most often, the JVs that are approved in these scenarios are not populated with any actual employees who are performing the contract other than administrative employees. So you have to maintain separate payrolls in the process, which becomes a problem. One of the other big issues that um, becomes a con is that somebody's got to take control of making sure that the JV is registered in SAM, uh, the systems for award of management that exist on the internet. And then ultimately, the biggest con that has to exist is we all know in any partnership that two people have together, there will be disputes There will be an issue at some point in time when people don't agree, and you have to make sure that the agreement in the JV deals with a way to resolve those disputes. Yes, absolutely. And lastly, the government may view joint ventures as lacking a clear point of contact, raising concerns regarding control, authority, and accountability, which means that the contract needs to be properly structured. And Don, this is your area of expertise Tell us about the legal entity that must be created and some of the key provisions of the agreement. Sure. So typically what happens in all these situations is once two parties agree that they want to start a JV, ultimately they have to make sure that they've got appropriate approvals and that this the agreement, the actual JV itself, 
is appropriately registered in SAM, and then ultimately that there's an agreement that measures all of the different aspects of the company. It's a lot like when you start a company, if you have a partner, that you ultimately have to sit down and work through a buy-sell agreement or some sort of operating agreement that addresses a variety of different issues in the process. Generally, most of the JVs get started as a limited liability company or an LLC, and it has a unique tax ID number separate from each of the two partners that may be involved. Typically, what happens is then there gets to be the process of sitting down and trying to figure out what goes into the agreement. What are we going to address now as opposed to the operational issues that we're going to have to deal with through the life of the contract that may be won by the JV? In this scenario, Usually we have a lot of different things that have to be in the agreement based on what the SBA requires in the process. For instance, they have to designate that the small business is actually the managing partner of that joint venture. They have to designate an employee of the small business that's going to manage the venture, as well as a project manager that is an employee of the small business that's going to be responsible for making sure that the contract itself is performed. The other thing that the joint venture agreement needs to address is the idea that the small business must own at least 51% of the joint venture and ultimately has to do at least 40% of the work that goes through the joint venture. That ends up being sort of a tougher sell sometimes for some of the bigger companies who suddenly find that they are not in control as much as they may want to be. The small business must also receive profits from the joint venture, commensurate with the work that's performed by the small business. There has to be the establishment of a special bank account in the name of the joint venture, a requirement that a signature of all parties to the joint venture or their designees are on all checks for any sort of withdrawals that might end up being from that bank account. All payments to the joint venture for performance on any small business contract have to be deposited into the special account. All expenses incurred under the contract have to be paid from that account as well so that there could be a full accounting trail of everything that's going on. The joint venture agreement also should make sure that it itemizes all major equipment, all facilities, resources that are furnished by each party, so that there's a clear indication of who's contributing what to the joint venture and who's going to be responsible for which areas and which costs that might have come along. Specifying the responsibilities of the parties with regard to negotiation of the contract, the source of labor, the contract performance, including ways that the parties to the joint venture will ensure that the joint venture and the small business partner to the joint venture will meet all of the work requirements of the contract is also critical to be included in there. So, Don, what about the specific requirements related to any small business set-aside contracts? Well, all parties to the joint venture ensure performance of any small business set-aside contract and that they all guarantee to the government that they're going to complete the performance despite the withdrawal of any member. So this means if suddenly the larger member of the JV decides to withdraw, the smaller member has to stick in there and find a way to make sure that they can continue in that contract. By the same token, the larger company that may be part of the joint venture has to assure that somehow they can keep the contract going and still deal with the management issues that are ultimately to be addressed by the SBA. They have to designate that the accounting and all the administrative records relating to the joint venture have to be kept in the office of the small business managing venture. And they require that the final original records have to be retained by that small business managing venture upon completion of the contract. In addition to that, there's reporting requirements like the quarterly financial statements showing cumulative contract receipts and expenditures have to be submitted to the SBA um, not more than 45 days generally after the end of the operating quarter of the joint venture. And then a specific project and profit and loss statement have to be provided at the end of the contract to the SBA. 
We need to take a break. My guest is attorney Don Walsh, partner with Wright Constable and Skeen, a Baltimore-based law firm. When we come back, we will examine some of the additional elements that should be in the joint venture agreement. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Today's discussion is brought to you by Scale to Market, and your host is Shirley Collier. Utilizing the proprietary Davey Business Development Growth Framework, Scale to Market partners with business owners and executives to help them achieve profitable and sustainable growth in the federal marketplace and take their business to the next level. Email Shirley at scollier at scaledtomarket.com to obtain your copy of the Davey Growth Framework. Growthmasters Federal is a nationwide community of growth-oriented government contractors, their owners and executive teams, and the professionals who support them. The mission is to share experiences and discuss timely topics on planning and executing the most effective growth strategies in the complex, highly regulated, but opportunity-rich federal marketplace. And now back to our podcast on the risks, benefits, pros, and cons of joint ventures featuring Don Walsh of Wright, Constable, and Skeen providing legal services to businesses in the Mid-Atlantic for over a hundred years. Welcome back. Don, obviously there are a lot of managerial, administrative, and accounting activities that must be performed by the members of the JV, which small businesses need to be cognizant of. So let's examine some of the other elements that should be in the JV agreement beginning with the rights, obligations, and powers of the members and officers and limitation of liability. Sure. Well, there's a lot of things that need to ultimately go into here. And this is kind of a lot like what we talked about. When you're starting a new business and you may have a partner, you have to sit down and really evaluate a lot of different things that may come along. This isn't to say that we're talking about the specifics about how a particular Uh, screw is going to get tightened or how a particular deliverable is going to be provided to the government. It's more of the overall infrastructure and operating issues that ultimately get discussed. One of the things that ends up happening that needs to be addressed in all these agreements is the capital component. So the company starts and presumably there's limited capital in it as you start the JV and everybody's just contributing a variety of different services. The question becomes, what if the company ultimately needs money? Money to purchase services, money to somehow subcontract different things and provide payments for a variety of things while you're waiting payments from the government. That is something that ultimately must be addressed in the front um, that all companies ultimately should deal with as part of that JV structure. Who's going to contribute what? When are they going to contribute it? Whether it's going to be loans, whether it's going to be capital investment, and how ultimately that's going to be washed through. Some of the other things that they need to be addressed is what happens if somebody's not pulling their weight? Um, One of the other big issues that ultimately ends up having to be dealt with is the idea, what if a partner wants to buy out? What if they want out, they want to leave, or you want to force them out because they're not actually pulling their weight or doing everything that you expected of them in the process. The more you can do to address those types of things at the front of the deal, when it's sort of uh, the marriage that's going on and everybody's planning for the wonderful things that are going to happen as these new contracts come in, you have to deal with what happens in the event that somebody decides that they want to leave or for some reason or another, somebody's not pulling their weight and you really want to push them out. And that's not always easy to address at the very beginning because you're still in the honeymoon phase of the relationship, but that's very sound advice. It does need to be addressed up front. Don, what about IP protection, non-competes, and non-solicitation provisions? So one of the um, 
bigger issues that ultimately come up in any partnership like this, where you have two companies coming together to help a contract, is the idea that ultimately they already have their own workforces. They have other things that they're doing during this period of time, other contracts that they're chasing after and other ideas that they're really pursuing. And the companies need to find a way that they ultimately want to work with that in a way that they ultimately want to protect what they have and what they've already developed to make sure that nobody is stealing it. There's a lot of benefits to being part of a joint venture, but by the same token, nobody wants to be taken advantage of. So they need to obviously discuss these different things. One of the bigger issues along the IP protection and non-competes and non-solicitations are the issues about trying to protect that intellectual property that people have developed over the years, that those sorts of hard work that they've put into it and making sure that it's preserved. IP protections are typically addressed in NDAs, uh, non-disclosure agreements that parties do prior to even getting into a joint venture agreement, and they pretty much stay the same unless the parties decide that they want to create different rights in the process, but they certainly should be discussed. Non-competes and non-solicitations end up being a bigger issue. Um, More they are geared towards the idea that you're not going to take my employees or my opportunities, because at this time, everybody's chasing a lot of things together. So the reality is, is that competing or saying that you're not going to solicit contracts or customers that I introduce you to is a little bit more difficult in those situations. But certainly you want to protect the employees and those types of things that you have. Yes, absolutely. And if you're a technology company, I know some of my small tech clients are afraid that their IP is going to be stolen by their larger partner. And and that's always a concern in any of these situations. And frankly, all small business owners have worked very hard to get to where they are, and they deserve Uh, accolades for getting there. And at the end of the day, one of the things that they want to do is make sure that nobody's going to rip them off, that nobody's just going to steal what they've done. Yeah. Uh, But what they have to understand that there's benefits to getting in this too. So they should find a way that they can share the IP in a protected manner and some sort of a manner that they get certain assurances from the other the other partner to that, that they won't take that. Keep in mind that there's going to be a sharing of IP between two parties. So not only is the small business is taking a little bit of a risk here and throwing some IP into the mix, the large partner is also throwing some IP into the mix that should be considered. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. What about remedies for breach of agreement and dispute resolution? This ends up being one of the biggest battles. Um, all agreements, uh, whether it's a joint venture or whether it's just a subcontract contract provision, Uh, or agreement that might exist with the government, all of them have some sort of dispute resolution processes in there. And they're in there for a good reason. As I indicated, uh, a lot of what this is, is we're during the honeymoon phase and people are looking at things. In my world, I plan for the divorce. I don't plan for the marriage. (laughs) So that's why I'm kind of looking at all these different things. A dispute's a big divorce. So you want to find a way that the parties can work through it in some sort of meaningful way that is sensitive to the fact that you have an unequal distribution of, uh, of labor, you have an unequal distribution of the size and dollars that a company have, and that frankly, litigation is not always the answer to everything. So addressing that dispute resolution up front, whether it wants to be arbitration or whether it wants to be litigation in a court battle, is one of the first things that they have to decide. The other thing that these companies frequently have to decide is where they want to resolve that dispute, not just whether it's in an arbitration or court. Are we talking about New York or are we talking about Florida? And they have to resolve exactly where it is that they believe that those disputes can be resolved. From the small business contractors, arbitration is great uh, because it typically, if it's done in the right way, is not expensive and it has a little bit more control in terms of where they can go. 
Court cases, you don't always have that control. But arbitration, you're also giving up the ability to appeal. You're giving up the ability that you can ultimately obtain additional information through discovery process. You can take depositions. You can find out things that you might not otherwise have known. So there are advantages to going through a court as opposed to an arbitration. Really, the idea is that in all these situations, not only should the parties talk about it, but they should have some discussions with their counsel as to what's, what kinds of disputes may apply or may occur and what is the best way and best place to resolve them. So, Don, what else? What else should be in the agreement? Wow. So there's a lot of different things that you can be in there. And it really comes down to a question of, of whether you want to overthink or underthink at the end of the day. There's got to be a nice balance to it. Um, Some of the things that we like to make sure that we put in all these different agreements are anything that's sort of contract specific for the particular proposals that might be involved. Um, Who's going to do what? What particular work share they're going to get? How they're going to resolve that work share if the scope of the contract changes is something that ultimately should be addressed in some fashion. Um, Keeping in mind that the small business uh, in this particular case is ultimately going to have managerial control over the contract, but it should be addressed up front to protect both parties so that they can avoid any sort of disputes later. You need to make sure that you address access to company facilities. You need to address where the work location is going to happen. A couple other things that we find typically that are important in there are to talk about the the basic business conduct and ethics, uh, the types of things that exist in all government contract world. But you want to have assurances that your partners aren't going to violate any of those and that for some reason one of your partners violates those particular problems, uh, those ethical concerns. You want to have a way to say, okay, I'm going to walk away from this at this point in time because I don't want to get into trouble with the government either. One of the other things that you really want to address in this also is public announcements. Um, Although the small business is in control of the management of that particular thing, you want to make sure that you have controlled announcements about the contract and about the opportunities that are happening. You know, this seems like a lot for small businesses to consider. I can imagine that there are small businesses out there listening who are thinking, why in the world would I want to go into something like this? But I have seen incredibly successful mentor-protege joint ventures that give small businesses access to significantly sized contracts that otherwise would not have been available to them. And this is particularly true in the architecture, engineering, and construction and IT industries. So Don, what final advice would you give small contractors who are considering entering a joint venture? Well, there's, there's two things. There's the practical side and there's the legal side. From the legal side, I would make sure that every one of those contractors who are considering that consult with an attorney who understands JVs and understands government contracts, really understands the practical approach of how it is that you win work, how contracts are actually operated and managed through that period of time, and how the work ultimately gets done and gets sold to the government. They need to make sure that they understand all of that in the process so that they can have a practical approach to the contract. The other side of this that is uh, sort of the practical advice that I like to provide that all small contractors is pretty much all small contractors, rightfully so, are very proud of the fact that they've gotten to where they are on the, the sweat of the brow of the owners, that they have done a good job of getting to that point, and now they're looking to sort of elevate themselves to the next level. In doing that, they're used to having complete control. You've got to give up a little control in this particular situation when you're doing a JV, and you've got to start, as we say, playing in the sandbox nicely with other people. 
it's important to sort of open yourself up to that possibility, negotiate what you can, but open up to the idea that ultimately at the end of the day, you will stand to benefit a little bit better if you're smart about picking good JV partners and making sure that you chase after those bigger opportunities. Excellent. I agree 100%. Don, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge on this important growth topic for small government contractors. Thanks, Shirley. It was a pleasure. If you would like to get in touch with Don, he can be reached at dwalsh at wcslaw.com. We will post a link to his email. And if you would like additional information on the business strategies around mentor-protege JVs, please reach out to me at my email, our website, or on LinkedIn. This is Shirley Collier, host of the Growth Masters Federal Podcast, signing off for now. Thank you for joining us today. Learn more about Don's law practice and his firm, Wright Constable and Skeen, at wcslaw.com. For more information on how to grow your business in the federal marketplace, visit our website at scale2market.com, at scale2market.com, and subscribe to the Growth Masters Federal channel wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our webinar series on the Scale to Market website, and join us again soon for another informative Growth Masters Federal podcast. Thanks again for joining us today, and have a profitable and productive day.